something slightly different this morning on the review. I am going to do a super duper short little review because we got 70 verses to get through and we're not going to get through them, I'm certain. But we're going to try our best. The good news is if you don't know this already, 23, chapter 23 next week kind of can be merged with 22. In, in many ways, I feel like maybe 22 should have been cut off in a different place and part of what's in 22 should have actually been in 23 so that the whole trial business would have been all in one section, right? Because that is a very interesting study in and of itself, all by itself, right? Um, what occurred um, in those days for Jesus are, as far as the legal system of both the the Jews and the Gentiles of that time, it's really interesting, intriguing to go in and research all that. So if you've not done that, Googled the legalities of the trial or something along those lines, you can Google that and go in and you can find lots of sermons on it. You can find lots of uh, resources that are that are just printed documents. Um, I have a list for you this morning of many of the violations that are uh, going to occur just in chapter 22. We haven't even got to 23 yet, so uh, we're going to talk about that just briefly this morning. But that was not part of your homework, and so I'm just throwing it out there so you know about it. Hopefully, you'll have a chance to go and do a little Google search for yourself on that. Um, and I am going to post. Um, a sermon that's by a man named Skip. Oh, I'm going to get his name wrong. Let me look it up. Because, and, and I'll, I'll have, um, when I send out my chart, I'll have it, I will have it um, attached so that you can find it if you don't have me. His name is Skip Heitzig. H-E-I-T-Z-I-G. And I've never heard of him before, but he does a one-hour sermon on Luke 22 that's phenomenal. And having already studied it for myself, now I can listen to this and go, wow, he just, he nailed some of these things. And he gives some insights that are very beneficial. And I'll try to, you know, kind of cap, I'll try to hit on a few of them if I can, but he does it way better, right? He's he's the expert on all this. So I will send that link out for you so you can go online and listen to it for yourself at, at your leisure. And I will post it on my Facebook page for those of you who are on Facebook, and you can click it there and watch it on your screen as well. And uh, you might find a new favorite pastor to kind of tune into and listen to. Well, he's good. You know, if, if I don't know how many sermons he has, but this one there's like, I don't know what they said. Um, thousands of people have listened to this sermon of his. So he, he's apparently better known than I knew. <laughs> I had never heard of him. Okay, so now what I want to do is I want to take you through a, a kind of a review, but it's a review to for the setting of where we're at right now, okay? So I'm going to guide you along. I want to talk about the first thing is what do we know about Jesus' mission? What, what, what was it that Jesus came to do? Are there some declarative statements that you can remember where Jesus makes it really clear what his mission is to do? Okay, spit them out. To, there you go. And that's in chapter 19, by the way, verse 10. Jesus' purpose, Jesus' mission 
to seek and to save the lost, right? So someone go to 1910. And read that. Somebody got that handy? 1910? It shouldn't be hard. Oh, but have your observation worksheets handy because you're going to be flipping back and forth in these. Now, yeah, okay. Now, uh, in there, what was the setting of that? What was going on there? Say it again. Oh, yeah, yeah, Zacchaeus, right. Okay, because I had forgotten. <laughs> That's why I was asking. <laughs> okay, so it was, okay, it was, it was Jesus. The, and the timelining of this, this was, what else had been going on as Jesus went to approach Zacchaeus? Where are we in the flow of these things? Where did Jesus start with his mission? C can you flip back way, way earlier in your mind? Okay, the beginning of his ministry. How about if we go all the way back to chapter 4? Go back to 4. Verse 43 makes the final statement, but even in, I think it's in 3, where he taught, where when he announces his ministry beginning, right? And he goes into the temple and he opens the scroll and he reads what it is that he's there to do, right? Do you remember that? So go now go to 43. Uh, 443 and tell me what his, the secondary primary of his mission is. Okay, so he was sent for this purpose to preach the kingdom of God. Now, this is really uh, kind of a profound point, and I don't know if you have really clued in how important the kingdom of God actually is. You know, we always think about Matthew as being the part where Jesus came to be the king. But in this one, it's a slight, there's a slightly different nuance to it. It's about the kingdom itself, the coming of the kingdom. And what that does for us, if you, if you haven't fully developed it in your thinking yet, is it links you back to who is going to be the king, right? Who's going to be the king in the kingdom? Jesus, but give me his titles. He's going to come as who? Son of man and son of God and son of David. Okay, so when you kind of tie those three um, titles of who Jesus is and you pull that back into the fact that he came to preach the kingdom and then you see what we have looked at. Now, I, I don't have time, but I actually did a whole list that we could go go back to the Garden Eve, Eve and go back, look again at those consequences of what happened in the Garden. But the number one thing that has that seems to be in the mind of Jesus and in the mind of the writer of this record has to do with that kingdom being restored, right? The kingdom was lost. So if you think about it, where did the kingdom get lost initially? The Garden of Eden. When man rejected God as their king, as their rule giver, as their law giver, as their king. And so when they rejected it, now, did that happen again in the history of Israel? Do you remember when Israel, specifically the nation of Israel, did that? When was that? Well, okay, yes. 
Okay, yes. Oh, well, okay, there was that too. Yes, that was at the end of it. Remember, remember at the beginning of it when they were going in on the land and they were going to establish themselves, and I think it was Samuel was the prophet at the time, and, and he was talking to the Lord, and he says, look, they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. So go ahead and give them what? An earthly king. So can you see how this really has tentacles that go all over. And our study in the Kings and Prophets really ties into understanding Luke even better. Because the point to what Jesus came to do, his mission was, yes, to seek and to save the lost. But but the, the way in which he would do that was he was going to reestablish his kingdom. He was going to come to be the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve where that kingdom was destroyed initially where that kingdom was again rejected by his own people when he, they were put on their land when they were given their land their special place this this land that God had promised to Abraham then they still rejected God as their king now what's happened where we're at in history with Jesus what are they doing again they're now under Roman rule and when Jesus came to be their king again. Although they say they're looking for the coming king, what happened when he when he said, yes, I am the son of man? Yeah, they want to crucify him. They want him dead. Isn't that an amazing thought line? So when you think about this, think about the kingdom work, the restoration of the kingdom. This is what God came to do. Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God that was lost in the garden, that was rejected by his people when they went upon their land initially. And so he gave him King Saul first and then King David, right? And very shortly after that, then they lost it again, right? It did not take them very many years before they lost all that. And Jesus has come now to seek and to save and to restore that. Now, the secondary kind of setting for us that we're moving into here is where are we in the timelining with Jesus? What what happened back in uh, chapter 9 when it came to his mission? We saw in the first eight chapters, Jesus was, he came on the scene. By the way, wow, are the titles of Jesus in those first a uh, few chapters, really profound. You you can go back and look at. Um, he, he's he's called the Son of the Most High. Uh, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. The holy child will be called the Son of God, meaning the seed that God promised. Right? He is called the Lord. And by the way, what is the Lord by definition? That title. God met or actually the Lord isn't God it's his well no it's curios curios and that word means master owner sovereign and get this prince he is to be the king the king when he returns in Revelation 19 he comes as what King of Kings. So again, our, we're back to the kingdom thing again, right? Are you seeing how important that that particular subject is in this book? It's about Jesus coming as the seed, the son of man to restore the kingdom. But you have to grab hold of the fact that he came as 
the seed first, that he came in flesh. I almost wonder why that phrase where it says he's called Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. I'm wondering why that phrase was not put into Luke in some ways. I I went back to look it up the other day thinking that would be interesting if that's actually in here somewhere. And it is, and it's in Matthew. But it almost feels like it should be because it really kind of uh, brings to a, a, a clearer place what the seed was. He was God with us in human flesh, right? All right, now... The, so that was the mission. Now what we're going to see is the second thing is what is where is Jesus in the ministry at, for us at this point? What is his um, what is his mindset? What happens starting in chapter nine? There you go. He it said look up um, Luke nine, look at verse twenty one, and then go to uh, fifty one. Look at those two verses there. Someone read them. Okay, that he is the Christ, the God. And now you go to 51. And what does he say there? Okay, so first of all, he's made a declaration to his uh, his disciples that he is the Son of God, and he says, don't tell anyone yet, though. Why? Because I've got to get where? Where do I have to get? I've got to get to Jerusalem. If you start basically blabbing this <laughs> to everybody too soon, what might happen? They may preempt the, yes, and quite on, and what we do know at this point about the, um, the opposition, who is, is specifically is, are the leaders of Israel, once he starts making these declarations that he has come as the one that who is go, going to fulfill these promises, who is going to set up a new kingdom, who is going to basically establish a new system and a new law and a new way of doing things, what did we talk about concerning that? How is that going to affect the priests and the Sadducees, the Pharisees? What's going to happen for them? Yeah, they're going to be out of a job. That's a good way to put it. That's a nice job, Kathy. <laughs> they're going to be out. So he's saying, look, I am the son of God, but don't be talking about this. Yes. And what's interesting is how many times does he, does he say that to his disciples through the book? Like a bunch, right? Over and over he keeps saying, I, I'm the, and not only that, but I'm going to what? I'm going to die. I'm going to my cross. I'm going to be crucified. He, and, I, and these are the things that will happen. So he has determined to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so that's in uh, nine, specifically 921. Um, and what, what else has he told us in this chapter 22, where we're at today, he makes some declarations about basically his mission as well. What does he say to us about his mission in 22? That what's going to happen as far as what has been said about him? The things that have been written about him. They must be fulfilled. So he is determined to go to Jerusalem, and the things that are written of him will be fulfilled or must be fulfilled. I'm just going to put it this way. All things written 
must be fulfilled. Now this is setting us up for where, what we're going to be looking at. Now go to uh, 22. I want you to look at verse 22 and 37. And just if you haven't got those marked in your homework today, make sure that you do mark them. 22 and 37. Do you see them? Okay. It, mark them in a distinctive way because this shows you why some of these things have happened in the order that they are happening. And sometimes, even in the progression of 22, as we're looking through what's happening and in what order and who's doing it and how is it getting done, it all has to do with Jesus preserving or protecting his identity until the time that is right for him to be disclosed to the world. Because he does not want a premature uh, arrest or a premature uh, killing of him, right? And so, since we know God is sovereign, we know that's not going to happen. But but what's interesting to me is how the the text in the unfolding storyline, there are subtle hints to how Jesus is literally controlling all these things, so that the timing is correct when he is a, is arrested and goes to the cross. Okay, now. Um, I'm going to put on here, all things must be written, and I'm going to go ahead and add back in here that Jesus has told his disciples. Um, that he is going to the cross. The cross is ahead for him, right? One of the chapters, I don't remember which one it is now, but he talks about not only that, not only is there a cross for me, but what must you do? You must also pick up your own cross and follow me. Uh, go and look at 18, 31 to 33 and read that one for me. I'm not sure what, I don't remember exactly all of it, but I remember I liked it. We're going to go on then also into 34 after that. Read uh, 31 to 33 and, don't, and then don't change your page. Somebody got that? Okay, Martha, thank you. Then he took the pearl aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. So he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Wow. Now, if that is not declarative, he laid it out. He said, This is what's going to happen. So, my question to you is then, What's the problem with these men? Why aren't they why aren't they getting it? Why are they still seeming to be clueless about what's heading uh, up for Jesus here? Why is it when Jesus kept saying he kept saying, "Look, I'm headed for Jerusalem." How many times did he probably say, "Nope, we're going to Jerusalem." They're going, "Well, can't we go over here?" "Nope, nope, we're heading this way." How many times he probably had to redirect them and get them on task and he he progressively made his steps toward that. Along the way, he was seeking and saving the lost, right? He was proclaiming to the world who he was, although the world was not fully grasping it either. You know, even even those, particularly those who really were looking for the coming of the Christ, right? Those who really were um, people who had tender hearts towards God and had ears to hear and eyes to see, and yet still there wasn't a full grasping of it, but there was a full accepting of Jesus' words and his ministry and his teachings, and they loved his miracles, right? They loved the healings and the people being raised from the dead. 
even the unbelievers liked those things, right? So why do you think his believer, his believers, his especially his closest one, his disciples, with all the miracles and all the signs, why? Why are they lost? Okay, they absolutely, so they have a predisposition going on in their mind about the coming of this seed, the son of man, who's the son of David, who will sit upon the throne. That's who they're looking for, right? That's really their, in the hearts of Israel, even to this day, that is their number one thing. They want their king. They want Israel to rise again to its glory, to be a, a ruling nation above all nations. They want to see that glory for her. Um, and so for that reason, they have a mindset that kind of clouds everything else. They, they just see one thing they're heading for, and that's this kingdom with, with their, their son of David, the seed who's to come. When he comes, when Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, he will sit to rule and reign upon the throne. And that's what they're seeing, okay? Yes. You know, that's a that's a really good point, Jen, and I have thought of that one myself, too. After all, if he is God come in flesh, and they really, if they were to be able to, to comprehend that really fully, how could any human possibly stop that or thwart that, right? Okay, so although we know now in hindsight, of course, we go back into the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. And we see, particularly like in the book of Isaiah, the whole picture. But all they seem to do is grab hold of those kingdom things, right? So they're kind of putting us to the back burner, all those things where it says he'll be scourged, he'll be beaten, he'll be crucified, right? They, they put all that aside. and it, But it's a mystery, if he's so, if he's God, why would he do that? Why would he allow that? And why would his followers allow that, right? Okay, so in this passage 18, go to verse 34. Who wants to read that one? 1834. Okay, Miss Susan. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Wow. There you go. Why are they still clueless? You know, because we can become critical on this. We, we can look at them and go, well, what is wrong with them? Why can't they see this, right? Well, what does it say? These things were hidden from them. It was, it was kept from their understanding. Who's keeping it from them? Who's hiding it from them? God himself. Why? So they can be fulfilled. Because if Peter, James, John, all these other faithful apostles, the closest disciples among them, think about what we saw with Peter when they came to arrest Jesus with Peter. What did Peter do? Pulled out a sword and says, shall we, shall we slay them with the sword, Lord? I mean, he whips his sword out and he lobs off the ear of, a, of one of the servants that's there. Jesus knew, God knows, that if they had been given full understanding that their fervor, those who have real hearts to want to follow the Lord, that they would not have stood back and willfully allowed Jesus to go to the cross. So God deliberately 
clouded their mind. You're going to see this when it comes to the resurrection again. When he, when, when he, Jesus is resurrected, why do they not recognize him right away? Because it, there's a, a subtle statement back in Acts, same thing. It was kept from them at the beginning because God wants to bring them to a realization. I'll, we'll get into that later. But again, God is holding back this information. Why? So that what has been written will be fulfilled. So that Jesus will go to that cross and die as the sacrifice. Okay, so Jesus has told his disciples about the cross ahead of him. And um, they have hearts to believe. So don't doubt their faith. Don't doubt their their sincerity in loving God and and believing on Jesus. But there is a certain amount of cloaking that is going on in their minds of understanding by God himself so that these things will be fulfilled. Okay, so let's go here. Disciples, they have hearts to believe. Uh, but God withholds full comprehension until it is fulfilled. Okay, so that's in 1834. So here you were in 1831 talking about him kept telling them about the cross, but they weren't understanding it. Why? Even though he was telling. So why tell them if he's also going to cloak their mind? Oh, yeah. That moment when the, the reality occurs, once God lifts the cloud of, of understanding and gives them full clarity on it they're going to look back and remember as they did obviously and they wrote these texts for us these these gospel accounts and they're going to recall Jesus told us he told us what's wrong with us right why didn't we get it <laughs> Oh, good. So there's actually two of them. I need to write that in my notes. Exactly. I now that you've said that, I I remember it, but I had for, when I was doing my homework, it didn't come to me. But this is absolutely right. The whole point was he. He does it, and he says that actually, I think, in the Gospel of John. He says, When I send the Holy Spirit, he will bring all things to remembrance, right? And you don't, there's other times when Jesus says, and you don't have to prepare ahead of time what you're even going to say to give a defense or to uh, how to plan or how to say or what to say. I will give you the Spirit, and the Spirit will move in your heart, and I will give you the words. And so th this is a supernatural, powerful work of God. And what we're seeing here is the sovereignty of God over what's occurring right now. So we're looking at this. I don't know about you guys. How hard was it to kind of get into this part of the storyline for some of you? We haven't gotten into some of the really even more difficult things, but the Passion Week for me personally is really hard to, 
to read through it. It isn't that I don't believe it. I believe it fully, right? I, it's just, it, it's unsettling to me to think what, of what they did to Jesus, my Savior. And I know that my sin did the same to him. He went there for me. And so I'm just as guilty. I put the nails in his hand also. And it is horrifying because I love him. It's horrifying to read the account of what they did to him, the injustice of the whole judicial system and the unjust treatment and the cruelty of man. And it is just, it is just really tough for me to, to, to cover this part of the storyline. I'm always happy when we get beyond it. And they're like, okay, now I can, my heart can stop aching, you know, in this part of the storyline. Um, okay, so we see that we see Jesus had a mission. He came to seek and to save the lost and to preach the kingdom of God. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem so that all things written about him would be fulfilled because they must be fulfilled, right? I, I, that, that word must in there is so essential. Jesus has told his disciples that the cross is ahead for him, but, and the disciples do have hearts to believe, but God has withheld full comprehension so that they won't interfere, so that the, the, the fulfillment will occur, so that they also will be preserved, their lives will be preserved, because instead of becoming warriors, his, his mission was not to be militant. It is why we're going to look at it in a minute about the sword, the subject of the sword. Isn't that an interesting little piece in there about before I told you to not to, or to, not to take a sword, but now I'm going to tell you, yes, take a sword. His ministry was not to be a militant one. And, and the reason why, what do you think? Why not militant in his first coming? If he had carried a sword about and was uh, looked in any way like he was coming, as the people were saying, to be the king, what? Oh, yeah. Rome would have came right after him. They would have seen him as an aggressor to the throne, and, th and, he, and that would have been an immediate end to his ministry right there, right? So he did not want them to carry a sword in those early parts of his ministry work with them. He wanted them to be total passives. And total dependence also was also a, t a training and teaching process and time for them to learn to be uh, trusting and depending on God to provide and to, to make things happen as God wants. So, um, okay, so now we're in Luke 22. This setting is now we're at Luke 22. And we're ready to get into this. And give me the timing. Where are we in events? What historically is taking place uh, in Israel at this time? There, it's the time of the Feast of Passover. Okay. And this is an unleavened bread. Also, I'll just put that on too. We're going to talk about that. Why, why is it often just called Passover? And yet we do know that there's actually two parts to that uh, feast, right? And we know it's time of Passover. And what is the political setting that's going on for Jesus at this point concerning the leaders of Israel? They are, they are, they are completely bent and completely set on wanting to kill him. So the Jewish... 
This is his own people. Where, where it says Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. This is it. They did not want to accept Jesus as their as their king and as their savior and as their Messiah. They totally rejected him. So it's the Jewish spiritual leaders in particular. They are seeking to kill him. Okay, so that sets us up. We're, that's in 1947, and it, we see it again in 22.2, okay? So there's our context for and our review for today. Rather than going back and reviewing all the setting of the book itself, I'm just setting the historical, you know, a premise to where we're at right now in chapter 22. Now, hold on a second. Let me pull these things. Um, I think I'm done with that. Okay. Now let me go find my observation worksheets, which are, where are they? They're right here. I moved them. <laughs> it's not good when you move things around. I know. I had to do it, though, in order to get to my... I have all my homework in here, and I know I'm going to want to flip to it later. Okay, all right. So now here we are. Let's let's start now with uh, this predetermined time called Passover. So let's first, before we do anything else, let's lay out what we know, what we discovered in our homework this week about the subject of Passover itself. So. What we're going to do is basically lay a foundation that's going to help us understand how Jesus uses this thing that is already established in the hearts and minds in the nation itself of, of Israel so that when he comes and does what he does, it all fits like a glove. It's all it's all a perfect matchup for them and they don't have they really have no excuse not to fully comprehend it. And they don't they don't really have any reason to explain to um, reject it. Okay, so we're going to look at Exodus. We start in Exodus 11. That was your first passing. Now, basically, it boils down to, she just wanted you to read that little piece of it. You could have gone back and read all the chapters that, that were before it so that you got all the plagues and all the things that were going on with Moses. And if you were a student who didn't know all that storyline, you would have wanted to do that. But I believe everyone here didn't need to do that because we know it, right? Um, when you get to this Exodus 11, where are we in the unfolding story of these plagues that God is bringing? We're at the very end. We're at the last plague, aren't we? What is this last plague going to do? What is God going to accomplish in this? Okay, God, in Exodus 11, he says the, the death of all the firstborn of Egypt, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, he, he makes sure that you totally get the full picture of that firstborn thing, right? Okay, and then what's the contrast to that? What about Israel itself? Because what's the point to the plagues? What was God trying to accomplish for them? That's right. Release my people. And Pharaoh's heart had been hardened. God was using this again as an opportunity to do what for himself with his people? Okay. That they would come to worship him. Because what would they come to know through these plagues? 
that's it who their god is that the power of him the the sovereignty of him the the uh the uh, the holiness of him the righteous judgment of him and one of the things he says in let me go let me see if i can find my ezekiel because one of the things he said in here i thought was really cool um verse 7 in exodus 11 here's what he says he says uh, i'm going to kill all the firstborn in the land of egypt in verse 5 right but when he gets to verse 7 he says but against any of the sons of Israel, what? Not even a dog is going to die. And why does he say dog? Not even a dog. Why, why is that brought up? For an Israelite, what do they consider dogs? Dogs. <laughs> yeah, they're the do they're the lowest of the low, right? So um, they, they don't have quite the the affinity of affection towards their dogs in that day apparently that we do right but against any of the sons of israel a dog will not even bark right and he says whether against man or beast that you may understand what Wow, how the Lord makes distinction. Do you remember when they go into the land and God gives them their law? A lot of their laws about doing what? Making distinction, right? The clean from the unclean, the the pure or the good or the holy from the unholy. And so he's, he says here, I'm telling you, I'm making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And why is that? What is God trying to impress upon his people there needs to be distinctions made you need to understand that concerning your god this this god who you are now coming to know what why does he make distinction what's the end result of distinctions that's going to be made salvation, salvation for those who what follow and obey him who if they belong to God, if they are his people, then he will do what for his people? <clears throat> he will be their God and he will protect their lives and he will preserve their way and he will be with them, right? But if you have rejected as Pharaoh had done, who, by the way, just symbolically, he is the leader of Egypt, the nation. So in a symbolic way is all we're looking at this from, right? Obviously, individuals, God takes takes care of correct but since pharaoh is representing a nation what god is doing is showing us here if you are a nation that rejects me that refuses to bow the knee to me who will not obey me who will not submit to me and when i tell you let my people go you refuse what's going to happen judgment so in this uh storyline of the plague what god is doing is teaching his people who he is and that there's, he is a God of righteous judgment. And he will make distinction between those who follow him and call themselves his and those who don't. So he's teaching you and I, the world, even all these generations later, that he is a God of judgment. And there is a day of judgment that comes, okay? So he says, you are to understand this. So let's put that up here. That's what we learned in Exodus 11, that there's going to be a death of the firstborn of all Egypt, but um, but Israel will be, I'm just going to put it this way to shorten it. Uh, Israel would be spared. Because God makes distinction. 
Yes. Okay. That some of the, and some of the people that followed them and went with them even were probably not necessarily all just just the Jew, the Jews. I would think there would probably even be some others who went with them. But what, and God actually addresses that. He addressed it in when he set up the law, right? Were there concessions made for the foreigner who dwelt among them and who traveled with them? Yes. Therefore, the Gentiles are, are also given mercy and grace. What must they do, though, in order to enter into that mercy and grace of God? They must accept God's law. In the case of Israel, it was be circumcised, right? So it's again, it's about God being their king. Are you following the kingdom that God is going to bring? He wants to be the king. All right. All right. So now we're going to go to Exodus 12 and look at some of the qualifying points concerning exit the the uh, Passover that are super important for us to kind of just lay out so that we don't miss anything important. What does it say that God has done? What is the purpose with this Passover meal? Yes, it's a memorial. Number one, it's as a memorial. Uh, and that's in 1214. And it's to, it's to be done for how long? Okay, as a permanent ordinance. Okay. Exodus 12, Passover. I'm going to put this on here as a title so that you catch that. Okay, it's as a memorial. It's as a permanent ordinance. And what are some of the points to it? What do they do in order to celebrate this thing called Passover? What did you learn in chapter 12 about Passover? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's on the it's the first month of their year. This is interesting because what's happening here is God is establishing a new calendar that's going to be distinct from the rest of the world. And you guys, by the way, P.S. and by the way, this is why we get so messed up when we try to start lining up dating on things because we're working with so many different um, calendar systems. Sometimes we're looking at the Julian calendar. Sometimes we're looking at the Gregorian calendar. Sometimes back in the days of the of say Babylon or Medo-Persia, it was their calendars. So with every time you hear a storyline, you're looking at a different calendar and a system of looking at things, even the way the days are measured, right? Israel measures what? Sundown to sundown. What does the, the Gentile world count? Sunrise to sunrise. So even in that, it causes some complications and confusions. I remember um, when the first time I did the Gospel of John, trying to figure out the the order of this week or the timing of this week. When did they have the Passover meal, and how did he, how was he in the tomb for three days and three nights, and how can it be that he was, it was a Friday and then he resurrected on a Monday? How do you get three days out of that, right? And in the end, what I think has happened through the generations, we have traditions of men, and then we have what literally happened. And, you know, if, if 
I look at it like this. God's word is truth. You know, if you know that Jesus was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, what do you know? He was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Now, how we figure that out gets complicated when you look at the way they count days and the and also even what day of the week it was. We don't even discuss that. What God does is in this establishing of this calendar system for Israel. He gives them their own distinct calendar. For them, it wasn't confusing. Now, what came, became confusing is what? When they got dispersed amongst the nations and they lost their, their calendar system and they started relying on the, on the Gentile calendar system. And even, even as early as the days, remember when we did the kings and prophets? What did they start doing, for instance, with the in the kings and prophets when those of the north went to uh, the areas of the Galilee and and above? What happened? They even made their own altars, right? And as the generations passed and as the different kingdoms came and went, according to what Daniel shows us, the, the rising and the falling of kingdoms, we also had different systems of... Um, timing and calendars that were put in place by them so therefore it gets really mucked up but what I came to see was there's even some issues that goes will, uh, will actually make it complicated for us to even see how all these things unfold in this passion week and where people who are skeptics of God's word rather than accepting it as truth they want to say well see that can't be possible so it's not true but what, what should our answer be to that? Well, first of all, with God. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Kathleen, that was really broad. Good job, though. <laughs> right out of Luke, too. <laughs> well, I mean, how would you handle it? If a person says, well, there's, there are contradictions in the Word of God, there are things that don't line up, and so it has to be a lie. They had to have made mistakes when they recorded things. Uh, I even heard that in one of the sermons this week I, uh, I did on Luke 22, they said, well, this verse is actually not in these records that are ancient texts, but in this text, which we use for our Bible, it is in there. And so he says, well, I think they probably that somebody just added that. I'm like, I don't care how it got in there. I know, and this was a pastor. I just had a heart attack. But And I love him. He's really good on everything. But that one I was going, no, I think you. Even pastors can make mistakes, right? So even Katie can make a mistake. So just trust me on that one. Um, uh, and I shouldn't even say even. Katie definitely makes lots of mistakes. Because I'm learning, just like you guys are, as we go along. We're learning this together. And so it's a journey of gathering information and trying to make it fit. But here's... Here's the thing about inductive work. You stand on those things which are absolutes. You do not violate your known doctrines. What you know to be true about God, you hold fast to. And you know that God is the sovereign over his word. He God breathed it, the scripture says, right? And every word of it is God breathed, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for training in righteousness. And if you look at the history of our written word, it has been preserved through supernatural means by God. So if that verse is in this text, what does that tell me? I believe that God wanted it in there, or he would have, through the ages, eliminated it. And so if it's in there, I think it's there for a reason, and I believe it's divinely inspired and God-breathed. And that, that is what I will stand on till the very end of my life. God does not make mistakes, and he is capable, because of his 
because he's the all-powerful. If he's capable of cloaking the minds of these men after he just told them he's going to the cross and then they're going, huh? <laughs> I'm going, well, if that's possible, God is capable of handling our word of God. What we have in the written word of God is exactly what God wants us to have. And so every piece of it is truth and is accurate and is profitable for us. So there's no need to argue over it. When it comes to dating and sequencing and the hours and the days, when we get confused on it, you just have to fall back to say, well, I do know this and lay out the things that you know are absolutes and hold fast to those and then say, as far as figuring out all the real particulars to it and how some things are conflicting, keep in mind calendars are different and datings are different. Even in the early part of Israel, when they made this, this break between the north and the south with, of Israel, right, the kingdoms to the ten to the north and the two to the south, they even had different calendars and different systems that even at that day. So by the days of Jesus, one of the things they talk about is... Um, they call Galilee area the Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Because they have been so inaugurated and so brought into Gentile rule and leadership that they had fallen under all their system of calendars and dating and everything. And it was different from what was going on in the south in Israel. Did you know that? That actually in Jerusalem, they were under one system of calendar. The Galilee area was under another one. And so some of this, this pastor, when you listen to him, he's going to explain to you how he thinks that he resolves the issue of how could Jesus both celebrate the Passover and be the Passover. It has to do with the northern tribes underneath a different calendar system. And so they were on their calendar and they came a little early. And then the other one came right after. And I thought only God could orchestrate that. I mean, that's if that's true and if he's, I'm going to trust that he, he he lived in Israel for many years, and he went there to as a worker, and he spent a lot of years with the people. And so I feel like, you know, I can trust him that he's saying that. And it makes sense. It makes sense. So I do know there's different calendars. I do know that there's going to uh, be that uh, tension all the time. And when you go in and do an Old Testament prophet study and try to timeline things, it gets so confusing. Okay, when did that king take his ruler? And... Who was co-regent with him? And was that the beginning of it or was that the end of it? Sometimes it says three times about someone and he took the throne, right? <laughs> Even though he didn't, he, he apparently did all three times. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yes. So when you look at the feasts, the chart that Kay, Kay gave to you guys, the chart on the feasts, what do you see about what's going on with that as, as far as what he's talking about with the how the calendar is really perfectly set out? We have those first feasts that you see vis, visibly when you look at the first four feasts. What do we have? Those are all in what time of the year? Spring, right? Are those feasts as we know them, fulfilled? Which ones are not fulfilled? The fall feasts. Isn't that interesting? And that there's such a distinction between the spring feasts and the fall feasts. The fall feasts then are going to deal with who? When they are fulfilled, who is it specifically? So if you didn't know that, 
The first four feasts are for the church, the birthing of the church, Jesus' first coming. And the last three are for what? Guess what? His second coming. It's it's a conclusion. <laughs> first coming, second coming, spring, fall. Very interesting. Yes. Oh, yeah, that was cool. So do you think we should expect these things in, like, October, November? What do you think, girls and boys? If Jesus fulfilled a specific holiday on a specific calendar date, I mean, literally to the day, so that what does Jesus do when he stands up to have the Passover meal with him? He's able to hold up the articles the cup and the bread of that meal, and do what with it? Substitute himself. He becomes the lamb of the Passover in that meal. And he's able to do that only because why? It's the exact timing so that he can do that. If, if he died a week before, could he have done that? If he died a week after, could he have done that? He dies on the exact day of so that he was able to stand and use the articles or the or the 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 the, um, the bread and the wine of the of the Passover meal and make it a direct application of himself to those things and then substitute and inaugurate a new covenant meal for you and I. So knowing that 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 happened with the first feasts, what do we then assume will happen for these fall feasts? Do you think they'll be exact? What about Pentecost even? Pentecost came how many days later? Was it 50? 50 days later? Yeah, exactly. Okay, I had to think after you said that one. <laughs> yeah, don't leave me astray, Susan. <laughs> yeah, so 50 days later. And 50 days later, when their feast of Pentecost came, what fell? The Holy Spirit. Fulfilling what? Pentecost, when they took the two loaves of bread, right, and waved the, the sheaves, right? And so it was Jew and Gentile in one body, and it was this promise of this coming uh, new covenant that, got, that we looked at this week. If it's that precise in how Jesus fulfilled that, those first feasts, we can assume what? It will be exact. So every fall, you and I can look around and say, is, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Right? We can anticipate that when Jesus comes a second time, it will be when? In the fall. So once Christmas passes and he hasn't come, you got another year. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. Oh, was that right? <gasps> Woohoo! Passover was yesterday. Pentecost. Oh, Pentecost. Oh, okay. I was going to say, if the Easter was like a while back. I'm confused. Okay, Pentecost. Yeah, nice. I love to, to kind of do this. Although this year, I got to say, I've been really distracted with being 
under the weather. My brain is not quite as in gear as usual. Okay, so, all right, so we're going to talk about the first of the month of the year. So you were to be to mark t references of time, and then you were supposed to go through and note what was, what was offered for information. First of all, there was a lamb, right? And it was to be unblemished. I'm going to expedite things here just a little bit for us. Uh, and that's in 12.5 of uh, Exodus 12. They were going to watch it how long? Three days. I thought that was interesting. Three days. So they, they pro procured a lamb. They examined it to make sure it was unblemished. And for three days they watched it from the 10th until the 13th. And on the 14th, what did they do? Okay, so they, they watched it for three days to see if it was what? What were they looking for in those three days? Any imperfection, any sin, any flaw. So what is the parallel of that with Jesus? By who? What else lines up with three? Think about it. Three. Three what? For Jesus' ministry. Three years. Isn't that interesting? So three years of ministry work. And what do we have? The lamb observed for three days to make sure. So obviously it's in a shorter amount of time. They're not going to watch it for three years, right? But they're watching it for three full days. And the symbolism in it is examine that lamb to make sure he is flawless, he is sinless. And was Jesus? Yes. So we had three, watched it for three days. Um, and that's in 12.6. Basically, it doesn't say it that way, but that's the conclusion. And then they, they, act, they kill it then on 14 of Nisan. That's the first month of their year in 12.6. Then what do they do once they've killed the animal? What do they do? They take the blood and do what with it? Put it on the doorpost. So they put blood... Okay, blood is put on doorposts and lintel. I remember the first time I studied this, I didn't know what a lintel was. It sounded like something you eat. <laughs> I remember after learning what a lintel was. Okay, and why is it put on the doorposts and the lintel? That's right. So that the angel would not destroy them. So that he said, it says actually in verse 13, read uh, 12, 13 for me. Sarah, can you read that one? That ex It's in Exodus 12, verse 13. What will happen? Well, okay. So who's going to pass over? I will pass it. The Lord will. And he, it, it, there is an angel of the Lord. There is, it talks about the angel passing over. But who is, who is the real person that passes over? God himself, right? So the Lord will pass over. He says, I will pass over you, right? Or my angel who goes as the one whom I sent will pass But it is God who is making that determination. He is the one who has determined the righteous from the unrighteous. And he is the one who will examine. And he is the one who will honor those who honor him. 
right? And so he says, when you do this, if you do this, if you will keep my commands, this is just what he did in the Garden of Eden, if you will obey me, right? You may eat of any tree in the garden, but not of this one. And they, they chose to not, right? So that's where the kingdom got broken. Their king then had to leave their presence in that Garden of Eden. And now we have the same thing here going on with Israel, his nation. He's birthing a nation. He has grown them in number. He's now taking them out of their captivity. And he's saying to them, I'm going to take you out, and I'm going to take you out if you will obey. I will be your God. I will be your king if you will let me be your king. And if, if you want to not die with the, with the unbelievers, with the Gentiles, you will do this. You will put blood on the lintel and the doorposts. And then I will pass over and not destroy you. Beautiful pictures in that. I will pass over you and not destroy. All right. So that's all the way. And then it says you are to do what with the, with the lamb that you have killed? You're to eat it. Eat all of it. And if there's any left over that you're unable to consume because you're just too full, what are you to do with it? Burn it up. Now, we didn't go into any more on this, but this is called the whole burnt offering. And scripture talks about later that you and I are to be a, a whole burnt offering, a sacrifice unto the Lord. That our lives are to put, be put upon that altar in, symbolically in the same way that Christ is the whole burnt offering. We are also to put our lives as a whole burnt offering unto him. I love this. Okay, so they're to eat it. There's not to be any left by morning. And he says, and then this is an interesting little point. Go all the way to verse 22. Because this little point is significant when we start going in, in what, which we're going to do now is going through Luke 22, look in our paragraphs and how this all unfolds. What does it say in verse 22? None of you are to leave. So when you go into that room, into your home, where you have put the blood on the mantle and you're to go in and you're to eat of this lamb, which you are going to fully consume. It's going to be a complete offering and totally, um, what is the right word? But a total consumption of it, right? You are not to leave that room. Keep that in mind. Okay, do not leave. Yes. You're not to go outside until morning. All right. That's in 22. All right. Now, let's see. She did take you guys to Leviticus 23, verses 1 to 8, and she asked you to just kind of look in general about in that reference. And again, she does not take you to look at all the all of the uh, text concerning what's going on with, in Leviticus, right, 23, the giving of all these laws and all these holy days. But what is it that you observe when you go to Leviticus 23? What did you draw out of that that I think she was trying to help you see?
okay, that there was a time of work and rest. Very, that's a whole nother lesson, Yoshiko. That's a good one about God's, it being a, a, uh, a feast of grace. That not your work, but whose work? God's, right? So a time of rest. Okay, well, that is one really good point. But what else is there about Leviticus, the giving of these um, feasts and these holy days? What do we learn about Passover and um, unleavened bread? Okay, and one of the things that I noticed in there, though, is how he emphasized these are God's assigned days. These are holy convocations, right? And so these are God's assigned, predetermined, um, set, distinguished times. And he says, you do not, re you don't forget them. You perpetually do them. You're going to do them for all eternity, and you're going to therefore teach them to who? To your children and to your children's children and to your children's children after that. So that one day, what's going to happen? Who is going to be the Lamb of God that's going to come? And by them having been taught these truths about the symbolism of this Lamb, what happens when Jesus comes? Are they going to recognize their Savior? Should they have been able to recognize their Savior? And although we've learned that there's a part of this is God withholding information while he was yet on earth. But shortly thereafter, what do you think? Happened? Why do you think so many in Israel, like 501 day, according to Acts, came to faith? Because what happened at that point? What does God now do? He lifts that cloud of darkness to anyone who had a heart to seek and eyes to see. And they really were looking and really were hungry and really were wanting to honor God and love God and know God. And they really, really, truly believed that God was going to send this Messiah, this Christ. So when it was finished, when it was complete, when it was done, God lifts the cloud of of. Um, of deception or of, of withholding this information and allows their eyes to be fully open. And now what do they do? They look at all the things that Jesus said, all the things that Jesus taught. And in this case, we're, we're look, going to be looking at this Passover meal here in just a second. They're going to look at all these qualities of this Passover meal. And when he stands before them to talk to them about how he is now this lamb, they're going to get it. And their eyes are going to fully comprehend it all. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing storyline. Okay, so that is, um, that takes us now to the beginning of, of just looking at the outline of what's going on in the uh, book of, or the chapter of 22 of Luke. So let's start doing that really quickly. And we aren't going to have a lot of time to dig into all of it, but I think that we got two real important pieces of kind of how this storyline is going and, wh and what it is that's occurring right now in this uh, uh, timeline of what's happening with Jesus. And next week we're going to continue to build on this because we're going to see a little bit more of this um, trial that's happening. So we're going to look first verses 1 to 6. And how did you title that paragraph? What, what's the event that's going on there? Who are the, who's the main characters in that? Yeah, how they're going to... 
Yeah, exactly. It ha and who is the vessel through whom they, hand they are able to do this? How do they get him betrayed? Who will betray him? Judas. Judas. So the major character in here are two entities, the priests, the high priests, who are the leaders of their people, and Judas, who is who? One of Jesus' disciples. Isn't that, that, I wish we had time to really think on that, but I do want to ask this question. What, what did you learn when you looked at this storyline that this was a man who walked with Jesus for three years in his public ministry He witnessed all the things that the other 11 witnessed. He was, he was um, right with him as all these things, all these miracles, all these healings, all these teachings, all these parables that were taught. And yet, what, what has happened with him? He becomes the betrayer. What does that tell you? What, what impact or what truth has this kind of opened your mind to recognize in your own life. There can be people among you who can walk with you, talk with you, sit with you in the pew at church on Sunday morning. They can speak. Do you remember when Judas was the one who saw the woman putting uh, the anointing oil on the feet of Jesus? And he says, oh, oh my gosh, that could have been sold and used to do what? Help the poor. Doesn't he look like a righteous dude? He, he almost makes you feel ashamed of yourself for having poured that oil on Jesus' feet because he is so holy and he's so high-minded and he cares so much for the, for the world, right? It's what it looks like. So what does that tell you then about people that you sit in the pews with on a daily basis? There you go. Don't be surprised that even among your midst can be sheep among the wolves. Or wolves among the sheep. It's my dyslexia. I always get it backwards. I do that every time. We are the sheep. They are the wolves. There can be wolves in your midst. And they can, they can be cloaked as sheep. And they can often even carry it off very well for a long time. So I think it is really disheartening, don't you, when you see a person that you thought was a believer do some things that really, I mean, and they turn around and actually walk away. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I am too. I am too, but... Um, Yes. You know, it's interesting. You know, we don't want to get to become people who look around and try to analyze other people. What we really need to do is analyze ourselves, right? Am I actually living the life that I'm claiming? Do I actually have a heart for God himself for, you know, am I, why am I in church? Why do I participate in Bible study? Why am I, why are you here today? Are you here because you really want to know your Savior better? You really want to be an obedient child of God and therefore you want to know the things of God? 
do you hunger and thirst just to be in his presence in your study time? Or are you here to impress someone or to gain a lot of knowledge that maybe is just superficial knowledge, but it might give you standing in your community? This is one of the things we have seen with the Pharisees, haven't we? They've been, they are walking in the realm of religion and they, they look the part. This is why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, right? You look good on the outside, but inside, dead man's bones. There you go. Good girl. Oh, Jesus just said it's so much better, but that was really good, Lisa. <laughs> All right. So, yes. Yes. So, That's right. Now, so what you see by the text is it makes it clear to you that he has a king. And who is his king? Satan, not Jesus, not God come in flesh, not the son of man, not the son of David, whom they've all been proclaiming is the king to come. But his king has now become who? Satan. Satan is the one driving him. This very much explains to us when we study Daniel and Revelation about that, that dragon that has all those crowns upon the heads. And how is it that the dragon, who is Satan, and yet the crowns are who? The kings of their men. And the men are, are basically being controlled by what? The dragon, who is Satan. This is a Judas situation. Judas, it, his king, is Satan in this moment. He is submitted to Satan as his king. It's a lot like what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rejected God's law, rejected God as their king, and said, ooh, I'm hearing you, Satan. Talk a little louder. Okay, I'll obey you. I'll eat. And they do. And fortunately, the scripture goes on to show us their repentance and how God restores them and how they are looking for that coming seed in the future. And so that's a good thing. But Judas, not so lucky, right? Why do you think Jesus chose Judas then? He chose the 12. Remember the night that he chose the 12? I think it was back in chapter like seven or eight or something, six maybe it was, where he chooses his disciples. It says, what did Jesus do that night? He spent all night in prayer. And yet he chose who? Judas. Why? So that all things might be fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? That he knew exactly who Judas was and yet he chose him anyway. Okay. Good question, Carol. Although we don't have time to go into in depth, I'm just going to throw something out here. What is the predestination? Is it the individual or is it the plan? The plan. Who is predestined? Jesus. Man is given what? free will. Man's free will is never preempted by God. God does not step in and say, Carol, you are going to be saved. But that person over there, Jane Doe, forget her. She's predestined to hell. God does not predestine people to hell. He predestined the plan. So when you look at Ephesians chapter 1, it's, it's how, is it, how are you predetermined and what is the predetermined plan? It's Jesus from before the foundation of the world. 
the the idea of a human person being predestined even when you look at the study we see this in uh romans we looked at romans in chapter i think it was 10 and 11 talked about his sovereignty and about how god used people like pharaoh and hardened his heart but why was his heart hardened did god choose that for pharaoh so that he could kill his son is that the kind of god we serve why did God choose Pharaoh, and why did, why did he harden his heart further? What had Pharaoh already done? He had already hardened his own heart. And then God simply used him as, as a tool in his hand. But he had already made his own decision. His own free will is, was in operation. And God simply used that man. Now, did God know of the timing? Did God know who would be where and when and how it would all work out? Of course. God Foreknowledge does not determine God's control of our free will. Our, love is not love if it's not free will. And that's the whole point of this whole Bible, is that in the garden, God gave them a choice. Free will. Choose who will you serve. Remember Joshua? Choose this day whom you shall serve. You get to choose. So, the pre, so predestined, predetermined is the plan. Isn't that a great message? I mean, and isn't that lifting you up? Because what does that say then about Judas? He wasn't put in a position where it was a no win for him. But what had he done? He had chosen for himself who would be his king. And in this account, we see Satan is the one that he allowed to come in. And Satan, therefore, was the one ruling over him. He was the one guiding him in his decision making. And so... Judas, Judas consents to betray Jesus. Satan entered him. And I'm just going to put a little crown on here. Satan became his king. And Judas, what, did, what does it say that Judas did then? Concerning how he was going to betray Jesus, what was he looking for? And what was the problem with the, um, with the, Pharisees and Sadducees, what were they afraid of? The crowd. Now, this is an interesting point that he, they bring this out right at the opening of this uh, uh, event, right, of this part of the storyline. The priests are afraid of the people. And so when Judas consents to uh, betray Jesus, what is he looking for? Does it say at the close of that verse 6? He wants to seek for a good opportunity to, to betray Jesus. Why? So that it will be done apart from the people. What's going on in Jerusalem at this time is the feast, right? What does that tell you about how, what, what kind of people are we talking about in the city at this point? Thousands and actually millions. Of people are, have come into the city. Uh, one of the things that I think it was this pastor Skip says that Josephus records so many millions of people in the city, which is is pretty phenomenal considering how small Jerusalem really is. But there was not even an, a place in an inn. Remember, J Jesus comes to be born at a time when there was a feast going on, and there wasn't any room for him. They ended up in a stable. Right. This is the kind of masses that were there now why should they be why would these priests be afraid of the masses what do we see contrasted in this book all the way through in these records how the priests hate him they want to kill him right but what about the people 
Yeah. Yes. And it would say it said how they were mad at him about the things that he was saying, but the people were hanging on every word. Remember that particular one? So what a contrast. So if if the Pharisees or the Sadducees and their entourage went in to arrest Jesus on the streets in broad daylight. Later he says, I was in the temple and I was among you and I was preaching every day. But now you have the cover of darkness. And it's granted, basically, it's granted to you to do this. Um, but if they had arrested him in the light of day amongst the masses of people, what was the fear? There'd be a riot. Why? Even if the people didn't fully understand that Jesus was Messiah, come in flesh, that he was the Messiah, the Christ, what did they like about him? The miracles? The food? Yeah, give me some fish and some bread. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure they loved that. They loved the message of his of his sermons as well. They felt like they were getting a little credit. Remember, we just saw the one about the woman who put in the mite into the temple thing, and the others who were putting in large amounts, and Jesus looked at the two and compared them, and he says, hers is the greater gift. And I bet that made the masses really happy to think that they got credit for giving basically all they had to live on sometimes, sacrificially giving. When others gave out of their wealth, she was giving out of her poverty. And Jesus, in his message to the people at that time was, I acknowledge that. I call that good. But what do the Pharisees and Sadducees say? That's not enough for me to even go have a dinner on, right? <laughs> right, because it's all about them making money. Okay, so um, he, he, Satan had entered uh, Judas. And um, the other thing was Judas sought a good opportunity. Away from crowd. Oh, very interesting. That's a good one. This is the opportunity. You're right. I didn't. I hadn't connected those two. Would you know what that verse is? Oh, okay. Because I'll I'll put it up here for, and then I need to write it down before it gets erased. <laughs> I remember that. Um, that well before, right? Chapter four. Yeah. Okay. So now let's go to seven to thirteen. So this starts us out seven to thirteen. I hope we get through most of this, but we're not. <laughs> I can see it now. All right, what do we see in 7 to 13? They're making some preparations. Now, this is cool. Um, we don't see it in this one, but Yoshiko was saying to me, too, how she, she was comparing, you know, when you compare synoptically one to another. What did we learn in Mark that we didn't learn here? Was it this one that we learned the names? There you go, Peter, James, and John. I think it was in here that it says, who was going to go to prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat of it? And he said to them, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, you know, go, you have to go and enter into the city and do these different things. Oh, it's here. It's in Luke. I'm sorry. Luke does say it, Peter and John. Okay, I, it's, another, it's another passage later where we see the inside in Mark. Okay. 
Okay, good. Peter, James, and John. So Jesus said, and that's when he goes to pray. So that's the next section. Yeah, okay. But in this case, this is really interesting. Now, why do you think Jesus only sends two, and he names the two, and they go on ahead? Why do you think all of this seems to be happening in this way? Okay, number one, what do we know about Peter, Peter, James, and John? But in this case, it's Peter and John, right? What do we know about Peter and John? Is what, what amongst the 12, who are they? They're kind of that inner circle that seem to be almost the leaders of the leaders, right? And therefore, they're the, tr the most trusted, correct? Why would Jesus pick his most trusted disciples? to go ahead and prepare a place for him for Passover meal. Go back to this and remember what we learned about the night of Passover meal and the fact that Judas is looking for an opportunity away from the crowds that they might go and arrest him. What's going to happen when they enter into that upper room? None of you are allowed to do what? Leave until when? Would you think that might be a real good opportunity? How many people are in upper rooms of their own? The, the masses are off the streets because they're doing what? They're celebrating Passover. So the crowds are now dealt with, correct? Are you following? This is really interesting because it's a subtle thing here. But what he's showing us here in this part about why does he add this storyline in about Jude, uh, John, Peter and John going to prepare for the Passover? Other than the fact that it just tells us he's going to celebrate Passover, right? But why does he specifically give us the names of two men? Are those names significant in, in what he's trying to convey in this storyline? And what might be the reason of the link between verses 1 to 6 and 7 to 13? If Judas is seeking for an opportunity, would the upper room be an awesome opportunity? So who do you think doesn't know about this upper room yet? Judas. Why not? It would have been an opportunity. And so by not letting Judas know yet... He lets his two inner circle men go ahead and and he gives and he's already planned this out. Now whether he it doesn't tell us whether he, Jesus, had already talked to this owner of this home beforehand, or if there's just a supernatural thing going on. We don't know. But either way, what Jesus does is he sets it up so that Peter and John are going to know specifically where to go. And it's going to be someplace that is discreet and safe for them to go so that What's not going to happen during that upper uh, meal, that Passover meal for him? It's not going to get disrupted. He's not going to get arrested. He's going to be able to fulfill what he needs to do. Is what he did in the upper uh, room in that Passover meal, is it significant and was it necessary to be done? Yes. He was giving them some very precise instructions about how they were going to, from that day forward, see the Passover, right? What was going to happen with that Passover meal? It was going to go from being a Passover meal to being a what? New covenant meal. Right? All the symbolism of this is going to be applied to who? 
to Jesus. It's going to now be Jesus is the lamb. Jesus' blood is the blood. And, it, and, and the, um, his death upon the cross and his blood being shed means that the death angel will pass over in that covenant, right? So all the symbolism was there. So he absolutely could not be interrupted. He needed to get through that whole teaching lesson and that inauguration of a new covenant meal for them. They needed the, the inauguration of the new covenant happens on the cross, but the inauguration of the meal of remembrance takes place in that upper room. And if, if Satan was allowed to coerce things so through, through Judas, if Judas had known, then he would have, spilled the beans and they would have been there too soon to arrest him so that's why he sends these two only this is the flow of thought he's saying he's trying to figure out a way apart from the crowd the very next thing he says these two men go and prepare a place and it's a and therefore it's a place of safety and it's a place without without interruption until the time is right it isn't very long after that meal that jesus is arrested but during the meal what not arrested Right, not interrupted. Isn't that cool? Isn't that a kind of a neat little insight? I thought it was, I loved that. When I saw that, I went, oh, that is just so cool. Okay, now, okay, so 7 to 13, we see, so now it's not just that Jesus uh, had Peter and John go to prepare the meal for them, but the, the, the extras behind that statement are like, wow. I mean, that's stealth. Jesus is got this all in control. There's a sovereign hand at work in the planning of all these last details. So he had Peter and John trusted, I'm going to put on there, trusted disciples go to prepare for Passover. Okay, that's in verse 13. So he selects the two. We learned in Exodus 20, uh, 12:22 that once they're in that room, none, no one is allowed to leave the room. They're to stay there so that the death angel might, in symbolics, might pass over, right? It's a, it's a, a feast of remembrance of what has already occurred. Um and so that sets us up then to go into 14, starting in 14, then to 23. What happens there? Now we're where? We're in the upper room, right? And what is Jesus going to do? What does he do there? That's right, and, and he reinstitutes and he re-identifies the bread and the cup of that meal specifically being him. This, um, it, I'm just going to say it this way. He easily established the new covenant meal, right? Very easily to be celebrated in place of Passover. He didn't even really have to explain it to them beyond that. He said, this cup is this now, and this bread is this now. And do this now what? In remembrance of me. And then he goes on to say about that cup, what is he not going to do? He won't partake of it again until when? Until, until he says, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And if you don't know what that statement actually means, if that's kind of a 
strange phraseology and you're tied up in a knot over it. What does that mean? Go down to verse 18. And he clarifies. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until what? Until the kingdom of God comes. So if you didn't know what until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God meant, it means until, until he, he brings the kingdom and then he will partake of that wine with them in that kingdom time. But he won't be partaking of it until that time. Again, this is his last meal. You know, I hadn't thought of that. That might be, whoa, good, good one, Carol. I could read your mind. As soon as you started to say that, I went, oh, yeah, I know where she's going. Did you catch that? She said, why did Jesus not receive the wine on the cross? It could be this statement right here. I hadn't thought of it. Could be. You know, a lot of people say, well, he didn't want to dull the pain because he wanted to take the full impact of this and that or whatever. I'm going... Well, I don't know. I mean, I think he's already in enough pain. I don't think more pain makes it better or, you know, whatever for him. But this, but tying it to this statement that he won't partake of the wine until the kingdom, that could very well be. You, you maybe nailed a good one, Carol. Nice job. Yeah. So do you think the disciples, all this was still going over their head, or do you think they're thinking the kingdom is close? I think they still are under that cloak of darkness until it's fulfilled. Until Jesus is on the cross, then I think they begin to have their eyes opened. Because what does Peter do in the garden shortly after all this? And he says, and why do you think he lobbed off the ear? What is it, What was he protecting? Jesus the king. He thought the kingdom was going to be established in that time. I think he was still under that delusion. Until Jesus fulfills it on the cross, there's still a cloak of, of um, not knowing and not fully understanding. Once it's fulfilled, then comes the full knowledge and the full understanding. I think then their eyes get fully open. They are thinking he's going to set up his kingdom soon. Yes, yes, I do. I do. And so when he's, like in this one, he says, but because I'm not going to do it until the kingdom of God comes, yeah, for them, they could be like, oh, tomorrow? I mean, who knows what they were thinking on that. But the, the fact that he said this, though, after Jesus dies and is taken, and he comes back, remember, spends 50 days with him, and then he ascends to heaven, um, now they're going to come to realize after the fact, oh, that's he said, it, I'm not going to partake of that cup again until the day of the kingdom, that the, the kingdom comes, until it's fulfilled and it's here, I won't partake of wine again. So, um, yeah, I think they believed that it was soon, but I think their eyes were opened later and they went, oh, that's why he said that. Yeah, I do think that they were still in, under their uh, cloaking because it says that, you know, they didn't comprehend it, and they wouldn't comprehend it until it was fulfilled. And even though Jesus had told them over and over and over, I am him, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, he performed miracles to prove it, he healed people to prove it, he w his wisdom blew people out of the water, it, this again proved it. He could read people's minds, remember this, I mean, although it's a different book, but think about the woman at the well, and he goes and tells her all things about her life. And they, they had to have gone, that can only be God, right? Um, 
and yet they didn't to totally get it. So here we are all the way to the cross. When Peter is in the next part of this, when we see Peter going with him and he sits in, by firelight in the, in the outer court area waiting on Jesus who's now on trial, even he is still doing what? What, is Jesus, what does Peter do when he's out there in that garden setting? He denies him. And he, and he denies him, and he denies him. I think he was fearful, and I think he, he was probably really confused still. If he thought that this was Jesus, the, God, the Son of God, if he really thought that at that point, he would have been willing to die for it. He probably would have marched right into the middle of that court thing and take his sword with him. I would, right? Yes, I saw that one too, and I thought, first of all, I thought, oh, they like cried themselves to sleep or what, you know? Um, not sure I do either. Did anybody fully dig into that one at all? The sorrow part, how they slept from sorrow. I noticed that too, and I, we'll have to dig on that one a little bit more and see exactly how we can parse that out. But basically, they fell asleep again. And I love the comparison of that. Three times, how many times? Three times Jesus came to them, said, watch with me, pray with me, and also pray that you not go into temptation. Three times they fell back asleep. And one of them, it says, and they couldn't even give him an answer. <laughs> it was like, sorry, <laughs> right? <laughs> Oops, <laughs> we were really tired <laughs> because of sorrow. <laughs> and so now when it comes to the uh, courtyard and Peter is there how many times does he deny him three times interesting that three times they sleep three times he um, denies him why in the case of both situations what what does Jesus say about him the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak the one thing that I think because we're getting really close to being at the end here of our time but the important thing to see here is that Jesus does not say your faith is weak he says your flesh is weak and for you and I this is I think a message that we really need to hear it is easy in this flesh to succumb sometimes to fear and to other kinds of fleshly agencies right that can pull us from standing firmly and being bold and and proclaiming the gospel when we should and standing up when we should and doing right when we should not choosing to do wrong but choosing to do right you know our flesh can pull us and satan's temptation yeah sift you right now what is god's plan in this sifting process why does god allow trials in our life do you know of a verse even that talks about that there you go james chapter one what does it say there it's what's there you go its purpose is to to basically refine you and purify you to uh develop or to produce in you endurance right it's to make you be able to stand better what do you think our lives are what are our lives here all about? Does God just like to watch us suffer and struggle? Why is it that when we get saved, he doesn't just immediately take us up? 
what does the trials of this life do besides the building of the kingdom of God, of course? It sanctifies us, it purifies us, it refines us, it teaches us the disciplines necessary, right? It also teaches us through free will to choose correctly. God says he makes distinction between the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, the pure and the evil, right? In this case, it was between Egypt and Israel. And he says, I will protect my children who call on my name, who seek after me and who will obey me. Those I will protect. And guess what? That translates then, therefore, if you're talking about the Old Testament, the Passover, the law, what is now um, superseded the law according to what we looked at today with Passover? Grace. Grace triumphs over judgment. Also James, I think, right? So these temptations and these trials that we see Peter go through here are for the purpose of refining him. He's allowed to, to fail in his, in his weaknesses. He's allowed to sleep in the garden. He's a, allowed, in other words, it happens. And wh what does Jesus say about Peter when he, um, after he has fallen in this way and he's denied Jesus three times what does he also say about him when you return he doesn't say if he says when you turn what strengthen your brethren why is that why is it that when I fail and once I turn around and I stand back up again how is it that then I'm able to strengthen anyone don't they look at me as a big old fat failure there you go. There is hope. They can look at your life, and you can look at their life and say, I remember when I was right where you are. It is a testimony. It's an opportunity for a testimony. Isn't that amazing? So even though we're weak, even though we fail, even though our flesh is weak, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this is what Jesus told him in the garden. You should be praying and keeping watch. And the interesting thing to me is it was so close to the, the time of Jesus' betrayal, and he had told them that, right? And yet they slept. I, I, I don't know. Have you ever had an evening at home where something is really important is going on? Maybe a child is not home yet from a date, and you're worried, sick, and you're pacing the floors, and you're looking out the window every two minutes, right? This is what Jesus wanted in their hearts. He wanted them to be anxious and watching and looking and being ready because something significant was about to happen. But what, what happened instead? The weakness of their flesh, they were tired, and they kept going to sleep. And Jesus to warn them, look, you got to understand, you must be alert. Jesus talks about that in some of the parables, be on the alert, right? He talked about it when he talked about the end times, be on the alert, be aware. So Jesus wanted them to do that in this time too. So we see Peter denied Jesus, told him, uh, um, and uh, as Jesus had told him, right, in verses 54 to 62, and then Peter did what? Once, he, once Jesus, did you notice how Jesus handles this? What does he do? He look, they get eye contact. Have you ever ha had a situation with your mom or your dad when you were a kid and that happened? Or, or even a spouse and they look at you and you're like, oops. <laughs> you don't, you just, your heart just breaks in that moment. You realize you failed. And you feel what? What's the difference here between what? 
Peter does and what Judas will do. Uh-uh. His sorrow is a worldly sorrow. Why is he sorry? He's sorry he didn't get what he was aiming at. Apparently, it seems that Judas was trying to force the kingdom into its place, right? That seems to be the, the, the possibility in that storyline, although it doesn't say that directly. But he was doing something in trying to betray Jesus. He was trying to force the hand, force the situation to come into, into its place according to what he thought was supposed to happen. So he was sorry he got caught. And what does he do with his his sorrow? He hangs himself. But what does Peter do? Well, he does only because of the death of Jesus. But, but what does it say in this account? What does Peter do? He wept bitterly. And Jesus had told him, when you, when you return, strengthen your brothers. So he says, look, your flesh was weak, but not your faith. Your flesh was weak. Your faith was tested. And when you do turn, and he does, he weeps bitterly. God will use him in a powerful way. Does Peter get used in a powerful way? You see him birthing the church there in Jerusalem amongst the leaders. Remorse and godly sorrow will turn defeat to victory. When Peter once again turns, as, Je as Jesus told him that he would do, our failures are often the best weapons for our next fight. Did you know that? And are excellent means to strengthen others. Because others look at you and say, yes, she got through it. She can do it. He can do it. So can I. Right? I always say that about my, my homework. If I can do this, so can you, because <laughs> I am no scholarly, you know, brilliant theologian. I am just a, I'm just a, a person just like you. I open up the Word of God and I go, huh? <laughs> All right, let's see if I can figure this out, right? Our, our excellent means, they strengthen others. Testing of faith produces endurance, James 1. Now, Jesus is held in custody. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's blasphemed in, in verses 63 to 65 and then 66 to 71. Jesus is forced to make a confession, is, it, is he not? They literally give him a direct question. What must he do? He must acknowledge it. And in doing that, what's the result? That's all we need to hear. And basically, what did they consider? He, his confession, an act of blasphemy. If you notice it, six, 63 to 65 is, a, is almost a contrast. They mock him and blaspheme him, but then they turn around and accuse him of blasphemy. Isn't that amazing? We are, we are out of time, but next week we're going to look a little bit more. I'm hoping I can add in some information about this trial, which we didn't go into very much, as you could see. There's just not, there's not a possibility of hitting 70 verses and really covering it thoroughly. But one of the things I want you to do in your homework this week is to spend some time Googling the legalities of Jesus's trial. Where did they mess up? Where, what did they do right or wrong? I don't know if you remember, but back when we did the book of Acts, we had the same thing when, um, I think it was Paul went before Galileo was the guy's name. 
or Gaius was his name, something like that. And he did all these things with him and he did all these illegal things. And so we went through, we talked about double jeopardy and, you know, uh, tampering with evidence and keeping him under under arrest for all those time, no speedy trial. You know, they had laws too in the Roman government. Rome has laws, and we're going to see this week in homework, also Rome violate their own laws. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're going to see that they actually said he's innocent, but then what do they do with him? They still crucify him. So talk about a breach. I mean, this is, they violated every law possible in order to convict an innocent man. They charge an innocent man with false witnesses. They're good. I mean, it's the, the list is lengthy. I actually found a list and copied it and put it and taped it onto my homework sheet here so that I have a list of all the things that they violated legally in this trial. And it just adds insight to what's going on as you're reading through this. Why are they telling you how he was arrested under cover of darkness? Why is that significant? Um, uh, what was it that happened by the the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and then what happened with the Roman leaders, and how do those things also compare in legalities? So it's just really interesting. That itself is a cool little extra sideline and it's not in your homework but I'm just throwing it out there because it does add insights to what's told to you in the storyline they're show they're sharing with you in the storyline what was violated by law by by uh, judicial law of the Jews and also by judicial law of the Romans but then they don't they don't explain it you have to know what they violated so it's really fun to go back and look at that and it helps it does really highlight what's going on here all right we did well, I think, pretty well.